over the weekend, you told a parable, the parable of the sun and the wind. Oh, I I thought I, I thought that was a very lovely story, and I thought maybe we could use it somewhere in the book. Yes. But could you retell it right now? Yes. I was, uh, what is, was important was uh, to make sure that uh, the message of peace went down deeply in the thinking and approach of our people. And uh, I was constructing, contrasting the strength of uh, peace over and above that of force. And I told the incident, which is well known, of a, a traveler, of an argument between uh, the sun and uh, the wind, that uh, the sun said, I'm stronger than you are. And the wind says, no, I'm stronger than you are. And they decided, therefore, to test their strength with a traveler who was carrying a blanket, who was wearing a blanket. And uh, they agreed uh, that uh, the one who would succeed in getting the traveler to get rid of his blanket would be the stronger. So the wind started. It started blowing. And uh, the harder it blew, the tighter the traveler pulled the blanket around his body. And uh, the wind blew and blew, but they could not get him uh, to discuss the blanket. And uh, as I said, the harder the wind blew, the tighter the visitor tried to hold the blanket around his body. And uh, the wind eventually gave up. Then the sun started with its rays very mild and they increase in strength. And as they increased, the traveler felt that uh, the blanket was unnecessary because the blanket is for warmth. And uh, so he decided to relax it, to loosen it. But uh, the rays of the sun became stronger and stronger, and eventually he threw it away. So by a gentle method, it was possible to get uh, the traveler to discard his blanket. And this is uh, the parable that uh, through peace, you will be able to convert, you see, the most uh, determined people, the most committed to the question of violence. And uh, that is the method we should follow. Even though he had once been a violent revolutionary, Mandela ultimately believed peace and gentleness was stronger than force and violence. Like so many of his stories, it's never easy to find his exact meaning. I didn't use the story in the book. I thought it was a little hokey. My official time with Mandela had almost run out. I had so many questions I still wanted to ask him. I started out this podcast trying to find out what Mandela could teach us about being great. I also wanted to know what I could learn from him about being good, which could be harder. I knew that after I finished this book, I would probably never see Mandela again. Not like this, anyway. I had one last chance. My final official interview with Mandela was in the spring of 1993. I had been in South Africa for six months. I went to Mandela's house in Houghton, a well-to-do suburb north of Johannesburg, 
Mandela's neighborhood was overwhelmingly white. Under apartheid, black families were not allowed to live there, even if they could afford it. The home was a McMansion with a large and formal gate. Mandela liked to take walks in the early morning in the neighborhood, but I never saw another person walking on the road. I had gone to the house many times. Security wasn't great. Sometimes Mandela's bodyguards buzzed me in without me even having to identify myself. I remember being there one cold morning, waiting for Mandela to come out and sitting in an armor-plated BMW with his bodyguards in the driveway. Suddenly, they thought they heard a gunshot from the other side of the house. The car zoomed around the corner and then stopped. The bodyguards jumped out to investigate. As the last one was hopping out, he tossed me an AK-47 and said, you know how to use it, don't you? I didn't, but fortunately it was a false alarm. That last morning, everything was quiet at the house. I got there a little bit before seven, and his bodyguards were outside already. When I walked inside, Miriam, his housekeeper, was coming down the stairs with his already finished breakfast tray. The house was always pristine, like a rental or a hotel suite. There was nothing really personal about it at all. A few minutes later, he came down the stairs wearing a shirt and tie and a sweater vest. We sat in the living room on couches across from each other, framed by a big, sunny picture window. At the time, he had two of his grandchildren living with him, Rochelle and Mandla. Both were leaving for school. Rochelle was about 16 and cheerful. The, the, um, so when your grandchildren were born, were they allowed to, to come and see you, or was the rule said that you couldn't... No, they were allowed uh, to see me until two years. Two years old. Yes. And then and not then, again until 16. Until they were 16. Rochelle came in to kiss him goodbye. She called him Tata. She was wearing a pair of red leggings and a T-shirt. And after she left, Mandela turned to me and said, Man, the clothes these children wear. Mandla, who was about 18, tall and slender and resembling a young Mandela, came in to say goodbye. Mandela was stern with him. Mandla, he said, that 50 rand note I left for you is meant to be shared with Rochelle. 50 rand was equal to about $12 in 1993. Yes, grandfather, Mandla said, without smiling, and glided out. I didn't know if this would be our last formal session, but it was certainly the last formal one before I was heading back to New York to start writing. It was sad for me in all kinds of ways. Also because I was going to be leaving Mary, who was then my girlfriend, but who would later become my wife. It felt sad, too, because it was the beginning of the end to what had been the most extraordinary experience of my life. But I had a job to do. In case I didn't get more time with Mandela, I had some final questions that I wanted to ask him. Some of them I'd asked before, but hadn't gotten very good answers. Some were new. Most of them were questions to try to get him to be introspective and to do some summing up. I was hoping he would be a little more reflective. You can judge how successful I was. Do you think it's truly possible to be colorblind, to be purely non-racist for a, 
a black man not to see that he's talking to a white man or a white man not to see that he's talking to a black man. That idea of non-racialism has been very much embedded uh, in our organization, at least. Because uh, we have uh, now other national groups, whites, mm -hmm. colored Indians, as members of the ANC, and they have been elected to see to its leading structures. I wanted to ask him this because he was such a symbol of both non-racialism and anti-racism. He had fought against racism all his life, but became the ultimate symbol of racial harmony. But he just didn't want to go there. I'm going to try again. I'm asking, too, because I wanted to put in his own words how he saw the future of his country and how it could be a model for the whole world. But I'm talking in a more philosophical way. I mean, are there any examples that you know of, of multiracial societies that would be a model for the new South Africa, where, where people of different colors live together in harmony? Well, they are already beginning to live together in harmony in this country. Mm. In uh, places like Yeovil, Beria, and uh, here, for example, my friends here on both sides have been here, and I've been to their houses. Perfectly, they accept me fully, and uh, as I accept them. And uh, there are a number of uh, groups now outside the political sphere where people uh, of various colors, various background, are mixing together. Mm -hmm. You are now having schools, white school accepting blacks, and uh, even uh, the hotbeds of Africana nationalism, like Pretoria University, Porchestrum, Rao, Stellenbosch, are now accepting the blacks. Mm -hmm. It's a process which is beginning, which is starting. And I think that can be developed. Mm -hmm. And it is possible for various national groups to live together in harmony. It's interesting that he cites white institutions that are letting in blacks rather than black organizations that are including whites. The ANC had always been an example of the latter. As to the philosophical question, he just won't go there. He answers like a politician who is thinking about an election, which he was. Then I wanted to ask him about something that had been on my mind since the beginning of the interviews. One of the criticisms in all the reading that I've done about you that comes up sometimes is that people say Nelson Mandela's great problem is that he's too willing to see the good in other people. How do you respond to that? Well, that's what uh, many people uh, say. That has been said uh, right from my adolescence. And uh, I don't know, I think people there may be an element of truth in that. There may be an element of truth in that. I can't tell you how rare it is for a politician to admit any perceived weakness. I count that as an enormous strength. I remember interviewing Joe Slovo about Mandela and him saying something that I will never forget. He had no guile. I know what he meant, but I'm not sure that it's true. You've heard him be shrewd and cagey and even cunning. But the larger point is that he had a straightness, a directness, an earnestness that was core to who he was. 
But when you are a, a public figure, you have to accept the integrity of other people until there's evidence to the contrary. And uh, when you have no evidence to the contrary, and people do things which appear to be good, what reason have you got to suspect them, to say that uh, they are doing good because they have got an ulterior motive? You have to take people as you find them. He resolutely rejects any psychological explanation. You have to trust people until you find out otherwise. Although I think he would deny it, he projects himself onto others. He assumes people are the way he is. He thinks people are naturally good because he is. He is the opposite of a psychologist and is a kind of moral behaviorist. He judges people by their actions, not their motivations. If they do something positive, treat them like that and praise them for it. It does make things simpler. Because that's how you can get on with, in life with people. You have to recognize that people are produced by the mud in the society in which you live. And that therefore they are human beings. They have got good points, they have got weak points. Your duty is to work with human beings as human beings, not because you think they're angels. Mm -hmm. And therefore, once uh, you know that this man has got this virtue and uh, he has got this weakness, you work with them and you accommodate that weakness and you try and help him to overcome that weakness. I don't want uh, to be frightened by the fact that uh, a person has made certain mistakes mm -hmm. and uh, he has got uh, human frailties. Mm -hmm. I can't allow myself to be influenced by that. Your duty is to work with human beings because they are human beings, not because they are angels. Yes, that is who he is. If men were angels, James Madison wrote, government would not be necessary. Mandela would agree. Mandela will work with anyone, including the devil, to do what he needs to do. And if they are angels, so much the better. He's been forced to work with lots of morally reprehensible people, but if they can help him, he wipes the slate clean. He never holds a flaw against someone. He said many times that he was no angel. He understands that human beings are complex creatures, that as Mother Teresa said, no one is as good as the best things he has done or as bad as the worst. He would certainly say that about himself. His answer led me to the next question. When he talks about human beings being human beings, he is talking about what South Africans call Ubuntu. It's a term made famous by Mandela's friend, Archbishop Desmond Tutu, and I saw it as something important to write about in the book. Oh, that's spelled wrong. Yes. No, no. There's two. The rest is correct. It's Ubuntu. U M U T U. A person is a person. Gabanya abantu. Because of other people. Mm -hmm. You see? I had handed him a card with the full phrase in Koza. As ever, he corrects my spelling and pronunciation. What does that mean to you? This means that uh, you can be nothing 
if you do not live in society, if you don't get the support of others, mm -hmm. uh, if you are a president, you are a president because your people have put in you in that position. You must never forget that. Because if you lose that support, you will never be president. It's interesting that he first interprets this in terms of politics, as a president and his voters. It's on his mind. Usually, Ubuntu is about ordinary people, everybody, one human being to another. We are all people through other people. We are all human beings through other human beings. That's the point. It's not really about politics. Or it's about politics as being about people. But then he goes back to its core meaning. It's about what it means to be human. You are a human being because other human beings want you to play that role of being a human being. Mm -hmm. If they don't want you to play that role, you will never be able to play it. Mm -hmm. That's what it means. Mm -hmm. uh, have you translated it into English? Hmm? Did you translate it? People are people yeah. through other people. Yes. That's the literal meaning. Mm -hmm. Now, this is a literal mean, mean, meaning. It's, uh, this is plural. This is singular. Mm -hmm. Oh, a person. Right. A person is a person because of others. Yes. That's what it means, literally. Okay. Because Archbishop Tutu says it sometimes. Yes. It means you must serve your fellow man. Mm -hmm. You see? You must respect and serve your fellow man faithfully. That's what, because without their support, you can never progress. That's what it means. He interprets this as serving your fellow man and woman, which he had done most of his life. That's what made him human, or maybe superhuman. I truly don't know how influenced he was by this idea. I think it was something that was just a part of him, like the water he drank and the air he breathed as a boy. It's also interesting how he interprets it. Usually, it's more like we are all part of humanity, a kind of one-for-all and all-for-one idea. But he interprets it through the lens of service. Ubuntu. He has served other people his whole life. He has fought for other people his whole life. That's how he found his humanity. That's how he found who he was. What makes a person great? When I was younger, I subscribed to what is known as the great man theory of history. The author of that theory is the 19th century Scottish philosopher Thomas Carlyle, who wrote that the history of the world is but the biography of great men. That's why I said yes to this project in the first place. I would write the autobiography of a great man. Mandela, The Lost Tapes, has in many ways been the biography of a great man. But the older I've gotten, the more I've realized that in the question of does history make the man or does the man make history? The answer is, well, both, as Mandela would say. But I wanted to see if that's how the great man himself saw it. In a society that was not repressive, say, say you were born into such a place, 
what would you have what would Nelson Mandela have become? Would you just have been a lawyer and a family man and do you ever think to yourself if I grew up in the new South Africa say what would what would I become what would I be? No, I have never done that except that at home I was being groomed for the position of chieftaincy. Mm-hmm. But I then ran away you know from a forced marriage as I told right. you. That changed my whole career. But if I had stayed at home I would have uh, been a respected chief today, you know, and I would have had a big stomach and, you know, <laughs> I had a lot of cattle and sheep. There are even some freedom fighters with a big stomach, I think. <laughs> Again, not quite the philosophical answer I wanted, but a revealing one. Something changed his path. He was on a path until he took a different road. Running away to Johannesburg was the thing, more than anything else, that changed the course of his life. He left his safe place. When he confronted racism and white supremacy in Johannesburg, he changed. He couldn't abide it. It went against everything he had been taught. It offended him in a deep and profound way. His reaction was, that is wrong. I have seen it. What are you going to do about it? If he had stayed home, married that young woman, he might have been a local chief we would never have heard of. He might even have been happy. While going to Johannesburg changed him, what steeled him, what made him mature, what made him the Nelson Mandela we came to know, was prison. For months, I had been trying to get to the heart of this idea. We're almost done now. All right, must be the, okay. about the last question. He's eager to get it over with. I've got to laugh. He really hated those introspective questions. I had really asked my last question already, the one about if he had been born in a free country, but I felt a little unhappy with the answer. Plus, I did have some more time with him on the clock, and I never wanted to waste that. So the final question in some ways is a follow-up of the previous one. I was also looking for an ending to the book. Last question. I'll ask it in two parts. Do you feel like, do you feel that now that you have been out of prison and having spent so many years in prison that now you're, you're making up for lost time in a way by doing a lot and experiencing things that you weren't able to? And the second half of the question is, do you sometimes feel that you wish that you could retire, that you could go back to the trans guy? Well, I am not, uh, I never think of the time I've lost. Mm-hmm. I just carry out a program because it's uh, mm-hmm. it's mapped out for me. That's all. And as far as uh, the question of retirement, one, of course, uh, is working with great colleagues. You know, the leadership of the ANC. He offers a tiny bit of insight here. I never think about the time that I have lost before he reverts to his usual, I'm just a loyal member of the ANC. He just moves forward. He doesn't look backward. But I knew that he did. We had talked about it. He remembered the past in extraordinary detail. I think there were many things that he was still haunted by. Usually men and women of action don't think much about the past at all. And maybe he didn't. Maybe I was the one who was pushing him to do it. The situation he and I were in was completely artificial, 
Most people don't have someone sitting down every morning and asking them questions about their life. I was the one forcing him to think about the past. But I think he's that rare person who thinks about the past but is not burdened by it. He has his regrets, but he's not held back by them. He keeps moving. I think that's what he meant when he said to me many months before, I came out mature. He's not disabled by the past. That's what maturity means. To use the past, to learn from the past, not to be constrained by it. It's not that he doesn't feel pain. He does. It's not that he has no bitterness. He does. But it doesn't incapacitate him. He moves on. And then here, he goes back to the usual boilerplate. He's a remarkable leadership, remarkable team, mm-hmm. with uh, opposing views and uh, who can fearlessly state their views, but who realize the importance of collective action, of teamwork, and uh, who need uh, just to be given uh, the, the, what is the opportunity to see what connects us in a particular debate. And they embrace it. You know, one of the most remarkable things in uh, the meetings of the National Executive throughout these years, especially now, that uh, I have had the opportunity of looking at the matter as the president, you know, and as the chairperson of uh, the National Executive and uh, the National Working Committee, is the fact that uh, hardly any occasion have we voted on an issue who have disposed of it by consensus. Mm. Mm. Hardly any issue. Mm. Now, that is the most significant thing because uh, we practice pure democracy and yet we come out so so strong. Well, I've got an appointment, you know. Well, I've got an appointment, you know. Hello, I must be going. That is Nelson Mandela. He gives a kind of half-hearted answer, a politician's answer to a thoughtful question, and maybe the last question, and then, hey, I've got to go. Above all, he's a man who acts. A man whose life is defined by action, not introspection. A man who never really rests. He's still on his long walk. And he's moving, moving, moving. Of course you've got an appointment. You're Nelson Mandela. I had brought a camera with me and a tripod, and I thought I'd take a kind of formal portrait of us on that last interview. I set it up. I'm not a photographer. I posed us in front of the big picture glass window with the sun streaming in. That turned out to be a rookie error. He said, do you want me to pose? I said, no, let's just make it look like we're working. He nodded. I sat us down in the way we looked when we were actually working. I clicked that remote control button at least a dozen times, but I had set the light meter wrong and all the pictures turned out to be too dark to rescue. I only found that out later, of course, and I deeply regretted not asking Mary to take the pictures. She was a professional photographer and today I would have those images. When I finished taking the pictures, he jumped up from the couch. I went to shake his hand. As we were shaking hands, he leaned in closer, and I threw my arm on his shoulder. Then he put his arm around me and drew me closer. At that point, 
I just let go and hugged him fiercely. I could feel the back of his head against the back of mine. I tried not to cry. I'm trying not to cry now. In that moment, I thought of the hundreds, perhaps thousands of men over the decades in grim and terrible circumstances, men in fear and despair and perhaps facing death, who hugged him for comfort and strength. It felt like he understood that, that he knew that that was his role, to absorb others' fear and love. He accepted it. I reluctantly let go. As I released him, for the first and only time, he called me comrade. I went back to New York and started writing. It felt a bit overwhelming. I had transcripts of all these interviews. I had Mandela's prison memoir. I had all the other interviews and research I had done. I made an outline. I decided to start with Robin Island. When I had written about a hundred pages, I sent them to Bill Phillips, the book's editor and publisher at Little Brown and Company. I waited. It wasn't a happy day when Bill got back to me about ten days later. He said he didn't think it was working, that the voice felt wrong. He said I should go back to the drawing board. I did. I went and reread the opening of Mandela's prison memoir, and suddenly, almost magically, his voice was in my head, and I started writing from the beginning. The opening words I wrote were, apart from life, a strong constitution, and an abiding connection to the Tembu royal house, the only thing my father bestowed upon me at birth was a name, Prolitlatla. In Koza, Prolitlatla literally means pulling the branch of a tree, but its colloquial meaning more accurately would be troublemaker. With that voice in my head, I started producing thousands of words a day. I was like a method actor. Even when I wasn't writing, I would talk to Mary in the voice of Nelson Mandela. I couldn't get it out of my head. I had returned in June of 1993 and had been writing for about six months. At the end of April 1994, South Africa was holding its first truly democratic election and Nelson Mandela was the overwhelming favorite to be elected. This was the natural ending of the book. I told the publisher I needed to go down to South Africa to cover the vote and then his inauguration so I would have some color and detail for the ending. He said okay. I also just missed Mandela and I wanted to be there for what was the culmination of his life's work and struggle. I flew back to South Africa in mid-April. The first thing I did was to go with him to a vast rally in Natal. I went with him on April 27th when he actually finally voted for the first time in his life at a school outside of Durban. Of course, he gave that dazzling smile when dropping the ballot in the box. But rather than being elated, he seemed distracted, as though he was thinking about the weight of governing a new nation. I went to the victory celebration at a fancy hotel in Johannesburg, where he seemed tired. A few days later, I sat in his office at ANC headquarters when an aide said he should wear a tuxedo at his inauguration. He replied, revolutionaries do not wear a black tie. He asked me to look over his inaugural speech, and I sent back a few lines and suggestions. I went to his actual inauguration in Pretoria, which was magical. I worked steadily on the book through 1994. 
Once I got going, it moved fast. I was sometimes writing as much as seven or 8,000 words a day. The final manuscript ended up being 196,000 words long. The book was 625 pages. A brick. When the manuscript was edited, we sent it back to Mandela in Johannesburg. We didn't hear back from him, but did eventually get some comments from Ahmed Kathrada, his longtime colleague and friend. A few days before the book was to go to press, we got an urgent request from Mandela's office in Johannesburg. Please remove all pictures of Winnie from the book. Strange. We didn't ask why. We didn't have time. But we complied. I never really heard from Mandela about the book, as he was then in his first year as president, which was his overwhelming focus. He did little to promote it. In his mind, I think he was done with it when we finished our last interview. It's a strange but not unpleasant feeling to hear people quote Nelson Mandela and know that you have written some of those words. But now they are his. I'm happy that the book has meant so much to so many. In some ways, I wanted to tear down the myths about Mandela, but then we created new ones in their place. His story is an inspiring one, and I wanted people to be inspired by it. He was a great man. But even though I wrote the words that helped people understand him, I didn't always understand him myself. In some ways, the gulf was just too great. After the book was published in 1994, I saw him only a handful of times. In 2008, while I was editor of Time, I got a call from the Mandela Foundation in Johannesburg. They wanted to have a ceremony where I officially handed over the tapes, the tapes you have been listening to, to Mandela and the Foundation. Of course, I'll be there. I had kept the tapes in a clear plastic box in New York. It was about the size of a briefcase, and I carried that with me to Johannesburg. At the ceremony, it was clear to me that Mandela was suffering from something like dementia. He did not seem to remember me or many of the others around him. But he played the part, as always. I'm not sure others could tell, but it was very clear to me, and it was sad. Even while Mandela and I were working together, he was getting to know the woman who would become his third wife, Grassa Michelle. She was the widow of the former president of Mozambique, Samora Michelle, and a great force for good in her own right. I've gotten to know Grassa over the years, and she is one of the loveliest human beings I've ever met. I would check in with her on Mandela's health and see her when she came to the U.S., but I was always struck by what she said about him in an interview in 1998. She was asked what Mandela was really like. She said, when you come to know him, he's a very simple person. I spent so much time looking for complexity and nuance in Mandela. I asked so many questions trying to find hidden depths. I was constantly trying to discover internal struggles and conflicts. Maybe they weren't there. When I first read what she said, I thought, that is the secret. It's not that he doesn't have depth or an inner life. It's that he doesn't have inner conflict. 
He has a kind of radical simplicity about him, a simplicity refined even more by all those years in prison. His thinking is complex, but his character is not. Prison was like the refining process of a metal. It just made him pure. If I'd asked him, are you so complex that we can't understand you, or so radically simple that we don't understand you, he would have smiled and said, Richard, why not both? His personality was strong but clear. He was sunny. He took pleasure in things. He was gracious. He liked to be fussed over. He enjoyed meeting famous people. Mandela's life was a titanic struggle. It began with his first encounter with racism as a young man in Johannesburg and his perception of how deeply and profoundly wrong that was. It offended him personally, and it offended him on behalf of all people of color. Ultimately, it offended him on behalf of anyone who had been discriminated against. That never went away during the trials and his time underground and his decades in prison. He had one great goal and never deviated from it. Never. So, how do you make a Nelson Mandela? We asked that question in the first episode. The answer is, take his God-given abilities and then refine them by three decades of deprivation and suffering. Not an easy formula, but the same fire that melts the butter hardens the steel. If a man can challenge a, a law and go to jail and come out, uh, that man is not likely to be intimidated. It was that simple, and it was that profound. He saw wrong and tried to right it. And he did. So, by a gentle method, it was possible to get at the traveler to discard his blanket. And this is the, the parable that uh, through peace, you will be able to convert, you see, the most uh, determined people, the most committed to the question of violence. And uh, that is the method we should follow. As simple and profound as the sun and the wind. Nelson Holiklachla Mandela died on December 5th, 2013 in Johannesburg. He was 95 years old. I never heard him talk about God or heaven or the afterlife. He wanted justice. I'm just, I don't want to, I don't want to take a break though. He wanted justice in this lifetime. I don't think Mandela thought he was special. I don't think he thought he was born with something that made him different. I think he believed heroes are made, not born. So he made himself into one, and he made the people around him into heroes too. Millions of them. Your duty is to work with human beings as human beings, not because you think they're angels. When we were walking one day in the trans guy, and I was asking him more personal questions like, how he wanted to be remembered, he said to me, men come and go. I have come and will go when my time comes. I never think of the time I've lost. It's that simple and it's that profound. Um, let's, um, let's stop. Oh, good. Okay. Good. <laughs> 
This has been an Audible Original, produced by Audible Originals, written and presented by Richard Stengel. Executive produced by Christopher John Farley and Anne Hepperman. Senior producers Claire Tai and Yael Evan Orr. Associate producers Aja Simpson, Rachel Pilgrim. Special consultant Zolela Manku. Vocal coach Dina Kay. Sound design lead Pat Hines. Edited, mixed, and mastered by Garrett Rank and Gregory Villefranc of Frank Village Studios. Original music by Sia Makuzani, performed by Sia Makuzani, published by Max Music Productions, PTY Limited. Acknowledgements to George Blood LP for restoring the Mandela audio tapes. Special thanks to the Mandela Foundation. To find out more about the life of Nelson Mandela, visit nelsonmandela.org. Thank you to my wife, Mary, who has been with me every step of the way on my own long walk. Head of production at Audible Studios, Mike Charzuk. Audible head of U.S. content, Rachel Giazza. Head of Audible Studios, Zola Mashariki. Copyright 2022 by Audible Originals, LLC. Sound recording copyright 2022 by Audible Originals, LLC. 